Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour. Driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition. It's Rosie on the House. Beautiful Arizona Saturday morning to you all. From where I'm sitting, I don't see a cloud in the sky. It is dry, dry, dry. No humidity that I can feel this morning. If you're sitting on the bleachers at the Payson Rodeo Grounds, particularly if you're on the south side of the bleachers, Mm -hmm. looking north, you get a beautiful, majestic view of the Mogollon Rim. This serves as the southern border of the Colorado Plateau, home of the Tonto Natural Natural Forest, the fifth largest natural, the fifth largest forest in the country, at nearly three million acres, home to countless legends, lore, and unsolved mysteries. One such example was 44 years ago, on the night of November 5th. 1975, Deputy Sheriff Chuck Ellison responded to a call of six young men of a logging crew who claimed the seventh man of the crew, a 22-year-old Travis Walton, had been abducted by a UFO. In the documentary, Sheriff Deputy talks about uh, his initial encounter. All he was really focusing on was sniffing for drugs and alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, it was the 70s. It it is. You know, he's probably trying to be there and... Hold a professional uh, presence and conduct the investigation. And you, all that's going on in the back of his mind is, dude, Travis is it's gone, good, man. man. <laughs> far out. No. <laughs> hey, not far out. They took him, man. <laughs> five, five, I was on Forest Road 300. I saw this light. <laughs> five of six passed a polygraph lie test. Oh, did he? Wow. And... A 1991 study showed that trees around the alleged location of the UFO had grown 36 times faster than they had the previous 80 years, according to the tree rings. Is that reality or after the drugs and alcohol kicked? <laughs> uh, according to the documentary, that's what they show. Now wow. we can't go back today, thanks to Rodeo Chetiskai burned it all up. That's right. So it's all hearsay now. They were getting ready to get uh, charged with murder. Wow. But Travis showed up five days later in a phone booth in Heber. There's a movie about it, uh, Fire in the Sky. Uh, Travis Walton is played by Dish from Lonesome Dove. You can also go to Travis Walton the movie for the doc uh, or Travis Dash Walton for the documentary. Interesting, uh, interesting. So we don't know what happened to Travis during that five days he went missing, but we do know that a gold-plated disc with sounds of Earth including Johnny B. Good by Chuck Berry, Songs from China, Bach, Beethoven, and Greetings from 55 Languages were strapped to a Voyager and sent into space. <laughs> it's now over 10 billion miles away from Earth. And I'm wondering that's if it's when, still playing. That's when yeah. you can tell when something's not uh, privately funded. Imagine going to your boss and saying, I'd like millions of dollars to send a record into outer space. And unless your boss has a hold of those 70s paraphernalia going, yeah, man, here's, here's my check. 
And Interesting it's... experiment, though. <laughs> and 50 years ago today, two Motorola transponders reached the moon with Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and and the third member of the crew? Michael Collins. We are go for Apollo 11. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Man on the moon. Oh, boy. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <clears throat> And there are plenty of documentaries that say that really never happened. Plenty of supporting evidence that there does to shine lunar light on the situation. We've got Dr. Sky joining us on the line. Good morning, sir. And good morning, Romy. How are you? Happy 50th. This is an amazing story. And I enjoyed listening to your radio broadcast driving in this morning about it. If you hey, were not you up know. at 3.30 this morning to hear Dr. Sky, uh, share some of the, uh, the, the stuff we missed from the broadcast. Well, we actually took some of the excerpts like you were just playing of uh, the first man on the moon and what that sounded like. But to put that into perspective, Romy, what we wanted to do is show and kind of put it on the more personal side uh, from some of the testimonies that we had, uh, testimonials from the different astronauts. I've had the honor of speaking to so many of the moonwalkers, and it's kind of curious. Just last week, I talked to Charlie Duke, called him on his cell phone, and he's the man here in the background that says, hey, you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue here. He, of course, was one of the last men to go to the moon. But I just wanted to put it in perspective to talk about the great human achievement. And when we replay this that I have here that everybody's heard so, so many times. It's interesting, Romy. Neil Armstrong actually said that's one small step for a man, and the transcripts have actually proven that that was what he said in more of a humble way because of all the Apollo moonwalkers, that's one astronaut that I never had an opportunity, though it came very close to actually uh, having an interview with him. We were at the Reno Air Races a while ago in the uh, big tent that they called where the VIPs were, and I was at the other end of the air base and the air show shooting pictures when somebody said, hey, you better get down here quick. And by the time two miles in walking, he had uh, magically taken off and, and left. But uh, what, a, what an amazing story, the whole story of Apollo. You think back then, I, I was 13 years of age, we were watching it, Romy, on a black-and-white television that I had to hit the side because the television <laughs> didn't work properly. And it was so amazing when we watched those images of uh, two humans setting forth and setting foot on the moon. Amazing stuff. They had such a short amount of time, some two hours and 31 minutes to collect. Get a little bit of this, some 47 pounds of moon rocks. And a little bit of trivia really quickly. The first thing that Neil Armstrong was asked to do was to actually bend over and grab a little bit of lunar soil, put it in his, in his actual spacesuit, just in case, because nobody knew what the surface was like on the moon, let's say it was like quicksand, they had to maybe then take off and escape. So he actually did get some prize in his hand, albeit it would have been a small amount of lunar material for such a long journey. I will tell you, the hardest job in that, of those three men, would be Michael Collins, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, because absolutely. It, you kneel and buzz, they're down there and they know, okay, if we can't get off the rock, this is the yes. it for us. To be Michael Collins and have to fly away without them, Absolutely. having that pressure. And he orbited the moon 30 times. Can you imagine? Yes. Like, first time okay, second time okay, 15, 24, 28. I mean. Yeah. That's <laughs> I, a lot, Romy. Woo! And another fact, yeah, another fact that's quite amazing is when you go on to the far side of the moon, that's the technical term, not the dark side, 
you're out of radio communication. So here's a man, singular, no other, no other person with him, and any of the other command module pilots. You're literally on the back end, the darkest of the dark space that you can imagine, no radio interference, no radio contact. You bet it takes a special person. And here's on a sad note, President Nixon actually had another script that if somehow the Apollo astronauts were not able to return back to the command module, and it might have almost happened because as the astronauts, uh, Armstrong and Aldrin, were in the upper stage of the descent module, the lander, they inadvertently turned. I don't know who did it, but actually the breaker, that's the rocket motor button that you'd have, let's say, on the wall to set like a GFI you know, electrical socket to restart it. They actually broke the edge of the, of the breaker. So this is a story that you don't hear too much. Buzz Aldrin actually used a felt-tip pen to push into that little socket. And can you imagine if it went click, 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 and no motor fire? That's very amazing. So thank God everything happened as we know it in history on this 50th amazing story. And we posted a link. Jen found it uh, in the office yesterday to that speech uh, that was set yeah. aside, you know, it, this is the disaster speech. This is the congratulatory right. speech. So we posted that link on our site, and that's, it's a short read, uh, mm-hmm. but it's, it's worth going <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, you're right. And it's just so amazing that even though President Nixon, everything seemed fine. One of the greatest transmissions ever is, of course, the replay. And that's what we put back in the Dr. Sky show for July, the actual phone call that was made by the president. Again, you mentioned before Motorola radios. It's about a 1.3-second delay to go to the moon. It takes 1.3 seconds for the light to travel or radio waves to the moon. But that in itself is amazing. And on our Dr. Sky KTAR blog, we have something also awesome there, Romy, is that people can actually click on the link and watch Walter Cronkite in the entire evolution with Wally Shira, one of the first Mercury astronauts. You can actually watch the whole four hours if you're interested as a space geek. And you can actually watch what happened during the time we pre-launch. And guess what? It even has the great commercials of the day, which by today's standards seem like uh, a long time ago. I love that. I, I remember watching it when I was a kid. And, yeah. um, and to watch it in real time, if you have the time, like four hours, yeah, it's fa- phenomenal. Phenomenal. Oh, yeah, Gary. It's amazing stuff. So it's just amazing that we have this happen. But here's another quick story of President Nixon. He was actually involved in canceling. He wanted to actually cancel Apollo's 16, 17, and we know the 17 was the last with Gene Cernan and, of course, our very good friend Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to go to the moon. They actually built the spacecraft hardware to go all the way up to the Apollo 20. And they would have had even more phenomenal uh, landing zones. They were actually going to go to the Copernicus crater. So if people out there are wondering on Saturday, why would they go to a crater like that? Take a look on your moon maps. Copernicus is one of the most amazing craters. It would fill the entire valley of the sun. So one wall on, the, let's say, the west side would be out in Buckeye, and the other wall would be all the way out in Apache Junction, about an 8,000-foot depth bigger than the Grand Canyon, and a small mountain about maybe a mile high in the center. They were actually going to go there, and a southern crater called Tico. So if you ever look at the full moon, and who hasn't, that thing that looks like a dot with the rays coming out of it, like the navel of an orange, that's the crater Tico. That's the remnant of an asteroidal impact that happened uh, maybe billions of years ago. But they simply canceled it. And, and now today, on, on a sad note, according to various polls, only 8%, get a load of that, guys, Gary and Romy, say that we, we should return to the moon. So NASA's trying to do it by 2024. You can only imagine what Musk and Bezos would probably try to do or are trying to do. 
So it's going to be an amazing time. And for those doubters out there, I've got to get this in. Right here in Arizona, the great science team at ASU with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, have you guys seen the pictures that that takes from orbit? It shows you the actual footprints and the tracks of the lunar rovers. Have you seen those images? They're amazing. You can see what's left on the moon. That's an amazing uh, bit of technology. Right here from Arizona, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. DrSky.com. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. I love that song the day it came out. That was hilarious. That would be a bad situation. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking your leg on the moon. <clears throat> True or false for a pair of tickets to Arizona State Parks? San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge weighs almost 900,000 tons, making it about 1.8 million pounds. This is slightly heavier than the Tonto Natural Bridge. True or false? You can text the answer to 411-923-411-923 in this programming segment, and we'll pick a random right winner at the end and send you two passes. Go to any of Arizona's 35 state parks, including Lyman Lake. A little past pacing, but it's a beautiful big lake. And if you like uh, remote locations with fewer crowds, that's the place to be. We've got a special guest on the line now who is actually there as an eyewitness watching the launch of Apollo 11, Miss Nancy Cohen Christensen. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning. You've uh, Your story has broke everywhere, and I understand there's people from around the world trying to get a hold of you, so we appreciate you taking a few minutes to join us live this Saturday morning. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us about your story. Well, it probably all began around May 25th, 1961, when John Kennedy challenged America to explore space. And at that time, my father was on the proposal team for the Boeing Company, and he helped to develop the Saturn S-1C rocket. Um, and it's the most powerful rocket to this day that's ever been developed. And so after um, they won the proposal, he became um, director of Vishu um, to build the rocket. And we moved to New Orleans in around the early 60s. And that was rather a social change for us after coming from <laughs> Seattle. Um, but we learned to adapt very well and enjoyed the area. And um, as my father was the operations manager there, um, it was built in the um, – it was Mishu was an old sugar plant, and it, previously it had been a Higgins PT boat factory. So my father had to redo the uh, factory, revamp it. Um, I mean, it was as sterile as you could get. I remember in high school he would drive me through in a golf cart and he said I could literally eat off the floors. It was so clean for what they were producing here. And y'all built these rocket ships, tr- shipped them over to uh, Florida, and you were there live watching the launch, and you got to sit next to? Um, well, I sat next to um, former Lyndon Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird, and then there was John McMahon there, I mean, Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson, and... They were just starting to do Disney World in Orlando, so Walt 
Disney had passed away, but his brother Roy was there. And then, of course, there were other astronauts and dignitaries. But, you know, I was starstruck because I got to see Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon. (laughs) And what was it like watching and hearing the rocket? It's an experience that it is hard to explain with all the movies they've done on the different Apollo launches, they still cannot get the sound of the thrust. I mean, it was reverberating. We were in um, a VIP section um, probably several miles from launch pad 39, and when that rocket went up, I mean, it was the power was hitting against your chest, and, I mean, everyone was literally crying. It was a very, very, very emotional time. And I will never forget it. As, you know, you remember different things in your life when John Kennedy passed away, and this is one of those instances I will never forget how it felt being there. And, of course, I was beaming with pride because I knew my father had such an important position to get this rocket going. And I have a copy of your speech given at the River Oaks Country Club in Houston, and you quote, 7.5 million pounds of thrust reaching speeds of 6,000 miles an hour. Correct. (laughs) So that's a lot of thrust. (laughs) That is a lot of thrust. And so you grew up in Seattle. Yes. Went to New Orleans, attended LSU. Best decision you probably made in your whole life. Uh, what brought you to? <laughs> in case you don't know, you're talking to a couple Cajuns. <laughs> well, what's so interesting? My very dear friend lives in Lafayette, and I hear you're from Lafayette. Well, I'm pro- yeah, Gary Gary's is. from Lafayette, and uh, Rosie's from uh, Little Town Welsh, about sixty miles away. Okay, well, I know the area very well. <laughs> and uh, what brought you then to Arizona? Well. Um, after the launchings and everything at the space program, and I heard Dr. Sky say, you know, it was supposed to go on through Apollo 20, um, but they just didn't have the money to continue the program. So we were um, transferred back to New Orleans where my father finished up um, his part of the Apollo um, launchings and then back to Seattle where he became in charge of the hydrofoils and jet foils for the company. So I followed behind and taught school there and um, met my husband. And then then we got transferred all over the United States with his banking career. So we, just, we moved here in the late 90s for his job with Wells Fargo and loved it and decided we were going to come back here to... Um, uh, retire. And I- well, thank you for spending your time with us this Saturday morning. The answer to the question is false. Tantra Natural Bridge is much heavier. It's almost 30 billion pounds. The tank is full, and we're moving through the Arizona Hour with Sanderson Ford and Rosie on the house. In 1877, a Scotsman by the name of David Gowan, Gowan, G-O-W-A-N. I don't have a Scottish accent. How would? How do you think Gowan. that rolls? I'll go with Gowan. Go with Gowan. Gowan. Mm-hmm. Moving through the mountains of central Arizona, when he star Apache warriors picked up his trail, he fled deeper into the wilderness as they chased him. He came into a, a magnificent green valley with streams running through it, looking for a place to hide in the distance he saw a towering stone archway next 
to a cave. He crawled in there for three days until he was convinced that his pursuers were gone. Now, this is a testament to what a landscape can do to you. (laughs) When he came out of the cave, what do you think he did? You've just hid for three days from Apache warriors. You're all alone. I'd I'd get something to eat. Well, you get something to eat. Would you maybe get out of there? Yeah. What? Get out of the cave? Yeah. Like out of the area. Out of... (laughs) He was so taken back by the landscape, he stuck a claim out for the land. <laughs> oh, wow. That He didn't need a real estate hey, agent. He just went, hey, I'll yeah, buy this. <laughs> this isn't bad. I think I'll stay here. It is he, pretty. He invited his nephew out, David Goodfellow, years later, who built the lodge in 1972. The lodge and the fruit trees that he planted still stand today. And we've got a special guest on the line to talk to us more about Payson, Miss Donna Daly, as we cover it as our featured staycation destination for the month of July here at Rosie on the House. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. You've got some great stories about the the town of Payson, and I love uh, I, I love the do stories. They're hilarious. Well, this is one of the colorful eras of of Payson, um, the the time of prohibition, when we had an unexpected economic boom from prohibition. It was supposed to stop the consumption of alcohol, and instead, people made money from it. And this all started with the the 18th Amendment went into effect in 1920, but it started here five years earlier. Back in 1914, uh, Arizona voted to ban the production, consumption, and transportation of alcohol. And that went into effect on January 1st, 1915. Now, it got challenged in a federal court, but the panel refused to put that law on hold. So we became the 13th state to go dry. And Payson was a great opportunity to uh, not acknowledge that law. (laughs) Well, you know, we're kind of isolated up here. So, Especially it, in the the, the nineteen twenties, there was no paved roads into it. Right. So I mean, it took a while for that to kind of sink in, but um, when it did, the effect was the local bars, which were the real social center for the miners, the ranchers, the loggers. It's where they would meet and socialize and have a little bit to drink and. The drinking part was cut out. Um, they still could go to places like the 16-to-1 Saloon, the Dive, August Peeper Saloon, but those saloons could only remain open for pool and card games, gambling, dancing, and the occasional fight. That thirst for alcohol, though, didn't really disappear. So alcohol production went underground, and that was when the bootleggers came into the picture. And they found that uh, there was a big demand for whiskey, and the production was a very profitable venture. Arizona Highway Magazine reported that there were anywhere from 30 to 40 stills operating in the Payson area at that time. And what was the primary uh, name of their product? Well, up here it was called Payson Dew. Now, if you read a lot of Zane Gray novels, because uh, Zane Gray spent some time up here. Um, in 1921, his cabin was finished, and during the years from 1921 to 1929, he was a regular fixture writing his novels up here, and he wrote about this era, but his name for it was White Mule. 
same thing. Yeah, I got to thinking if George Jones recorded uh, the song differently, it'd be White Mule. White Mule. (laughs) (laughs) And in the whiskey still, you know, you've got an aging process, but they did not have to do that for the Pace and Dew. Well, you know, it was it, there was a lot of local color up here at the time, and everyone was involved. Um, there were so many stills. Prior to Prohibition, you would have an occasional still. Um, if a rancher had a canyon with a good water source, it wasn't unusual to have a personal still there. But pretty soon they were popping up everywhere, and people liked to brag about how good their product was. And Vernon Halt, one of the locals, said that, boy, you could age that, you could age pace and do three years and 30 days. And he said the reason was that at five to six feet, you could find water that was as pure as rainwater, uh, free from minerals, no impurities, and it just lent itself to a really good brew. And it was not unusual to find sales going on right on Main Street, even though it was still illegal, uh, Pete Halt sewed 20 pockets inside his World War I overcoat. And each pocket <laughs> contained, <clears throat> excuse me, I lost my voice for a minute, it had a half pint of moonshine in there. So even on the hottest day of August, there's Pete wearing the World War I jacket. And if you smiled nicely, you could get your thirst quenched. And to put it in perspective, so he's got 20 pockets, and each pocket holds a pint or a half pint? Half pint. Okay, so that's a half a pound. So he's walking around with 10 pounds of moonshine in the middle of the summer. Now, I know you're at 1,000 feet, uh, I'm sorry, at a mile elevation in Payson. Yeah, we are. We're at 5,000 feet. That's, but, I mean, in August, that's still pretty warm and that close to the sun. (laughs) It could have been worth it. <laughs> yeah, I got to thinking the glass bottles he had the whiskey in. That added because they weren't thin uh, like they are today. I mean, That's those true. Were the, very thick. The so, glass bottles would have even added more weight so to that. Add that weight. Now, actually, they used any kind of bottles they could get because they they would just pay people. They would pay the kids to bring glass bottles, and we have a whole collection in in the Rim Country Museum of bottles that were donated by local citizens that are authentic moonshine bottles. And they're all different shapes and sizes, but jelly jars were very popular. And um, one of the the locals always had a statement that, you know, you could always tell who'd been drinking because they'd have that red line across the bridge of their nose from those (laughs) jelly jars. Wow. Now, as as this... uh, bootlegging industry grows, it brings in the authorities. And there's some pretty interesting stories about how they they handled that. Yes, it was illegal. Um, uh, in spite of the fact that everyone tried to hide it, the government did know that bootlegging was going on up here. <clears throat> and the revenue agents, which the locals called prohees, uh, they would come up, they would search for the stills, and if you were caught attending one of those stills, you would be arrested. Uh, one of the main revenue agents was a fellow named Vernon Lamore, and he, he made frequent trips up here because he had some local ties to the area. He went to school with a lot of these people. And prior to a trip coming up to Payson, Vernon had this habit of calling May Halt to announce that he was coming up to do a little fishing. And that kind of tipped the word that there was an impending visit by the revenue agents. And word would spread. 
Now, Star Valley is kind of like a suburb of Payson. Uh, it's not far away, a little bit more rural, lots of mules. So they would hang bells on leather belts around the necks of the mules and shoo them into the forest, and that was the warning system to anyone that was tending the stills. <laughs> and then sometimes there would be the phone call. It wasn't exactly a call. It was a distinctive ring on the phone line that would alert people that, okay, the pro are leaving Globe and they're headed for your area. <laughs> That would that would signal them to go get the the mules going. It's a little different than Paul Revere and the British are coming. <laughs> yeah, he just Morning had system. one way of doing it. He held up a lantern, one or two, and that was it. You know. Well, but we did have a raid. We had one significant raid on Main Street, and that was a building that right now it houses the Humane Society thrift store. But before that, way before that, it belonged to a guy named Frenchie Choquette. And he was producing and selling Pace and Dew right out of the building. And Vernon found out. So he came up with reinforcements, guns drawn, and he kicked in the front door of the building that he thought Frenchie was producing Pace and Dew in. And much to his surprise, he interrupted a lady's luncheon. They were cleaning up the dishes. Because <laughs> Frenchie had decided to get out of the moonshine business and he sold that building to the women's club. And they were just cleaning up after a luncheon, and they were not happy with Vernon and the, and the agents. Day late and a dollar short yeah. on the raid. <laughs> right. Well, the building is still owned by the women's club, and they just rent part of it out to the Humane Society. But it is, it is a historical feature on Main Street, and right out in front is our chaining tree. And this was on the Centennial website when we were celebrating Arizona's centennial. We didn't have a jail. So if you were caught doing something you shouldn't be doing, you got chained to the tree. I didn't know Payson had a chaining tree, too. We have one in Wickenburg, but I didn't know Payson had one, too. Well, yeah, we we uh, had it submitted to the website for the Centennial, and it uh, you you stayed chained there until somebody from a town that actually had a jail came and picked you up. <laughs> now, talk to us about the Rim, uh, Rim Country Museum. Okay, um, the Rim Country Museum and the Zane Gray Cabin, which is a replica of the actual Zane Gray Cabin, that one burned in 1990 with the Dude Fire. So a replica was built on our property in 2005. So we operate the uh, the historical society, the Northern Hill County Historical Society, operates the Zangre Cabin and the Rim Country Museum, which is a two-story building that tells the history of the area, uh, starting with the prehistoric people, going through the Apache times, uh, ranching, mining, just a little bit of everything. What are the hours and, and operation times of the museum? We're open Wednesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, we're an all-volunteer organization. Um, I am the exhibits chair. That's why I'm talking to you this morning, <laughs> because if you're going to do the exhibits, you kind of have to really learn a little bit about the history. And uh, we we try to share the history and collect the artifacts and... Uh, What's your favorite uh, exhibit on display right now? Oh, gosh, there's so many. And we are doing a renovation now that's very exciting. Um, probably one of my favorites is the first one I worked on, which was the Tonto Apache exhibit. Uh, 
and it was just it was a, a thrill to work on it. Um, we've had some really good contacts with the Tonto Apache tribe, and they've helped us quite a bit. Uh, but some of the new changes, we get requests from people who come through and say, you know, what do you mean I have to have a guide? You know, can I just go through on my own? Well, our insurance doesn't permit that right now because we have things like giant saws, and we don't want anyone getting hurt. <laughs> so we are in the process of retrofitting the museum to permit a choice. You can either have the docent guide you through or you can go through on your own. So we're adding some extra signage. We're developing a mini theater. Um, it's, it's going to be quite exciting, but we're, we're under a little construction off and on right now. Donna Daly, Rim Country Museum Exhibit Chair. Thanks for spending time this morning uh, shedding a little light on the Payson Dew and stories and events around Payson, Arizona, our feature destination for Arizona staycation. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. The Mogollon Rim, they say, is probably one of the most mispronounced locations in Arizona. I say Mogollon. Locals pronounce it more Mogollon. I remember a commercial that was done out of state uh, for the band Mogollon, and the guy mentioned called it Mogollon. <laughs> and it actually ran for three days until somebody went, uh, wait, that's not right. <laughs> Most likely named after Flores Mogollon, Spanish governor of the New Mexico Territory in 1712 to 1715. You can enter to win your Arizona staycation at rosieonthehouse.com slash travelaz or click on the staycation tab from the homepage. Uh, entries right now we have already drawn for our August staycation winner. Mark from Santan won that. He'll be going to Cottonwood. Our winner for September will be sending up to Pine Top just in time to hopefully catch a little elk bugling. Game and Fish has a couple events going on. Uh, one will help you uh, learn a little bit more about elk. It is the elk viewing going on August 17th. That'll be up at Mormon Lake. You can go to azgfd.com uh, on their events page. They also have the, uh, we had them on last week. Remember, they were talking about the bat netting? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's going on July 26th, so next Saturday, and then again September 6th. That'll be up uh, at south of Bartlett Lake Dam, but you go up through, uh, you take dynamite, like you're going out to Rio Verde. Right. And then when that dead ends, you can either go south into the little subdivision of Rio Verde, or you turn north, and I think it's called Needle Rock, uh, but it'll be up in that area. If you're interested in learning more about any of Arizona's, I think there's 28, yeah, 28 species of bats in Arizona. And then uh, this one would be a lot of fun. This is, now you have to drive for this one for most of those listening audience. It's the Hummingbird Banding going on next Sunday. This will be the 16th annual High Country Hummingbird Festival. Now you go past Springerville, like you're going to Nutriosa or Alpine. And as you come up the mountain, you immediately turn right and drive down to the Spy White Mountain Wildlife Area. The Round Valley Chamber of Commerce is providing breakfast and uh, lunch items will be available for purchase. You can learn more about the hummingbirds of Arizona.
And, of course, Ramsey Canyon is a hummingbird spot uh, where they migrate throughout the world. And that's south of Tucson, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, b- different it. part of the state. But if you look at it north and south, it's not too far off. No, not at all. They're right on the path. So could you go band one and eager and catch one at Ramsey Canyon uh, six, six months later? They'd have to, again, they have to drink a lot of sugar water. Then you got to get in your car and haul all the way down to see if you can catch that, uh, you know, red-throated uh, hummingbird. True West Magazine this month that features Billy the Kid and a lot of the lore around him. Do you ever read that? I enjoy uh, when I read something it's being slightly challenged. I don't like to sit there with a dictionary and have to look up four or five things to complete a sentence. But, you know, one or two a paragraph, I don't mind. They, they're always good about adding uh, a slightly educated vocabulary to their writing. And you know what's weird? On the way into the show this morning, I was listening to Billy Dean's hit, Billy the Kid. Great record. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, no kidding. Honest to God. Oh, by the way, uh, while we're on the subject, uh, we were talking about the alien abduction and Payson, the movie that... Uh, what what's the name of the movie again? TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. Okay, we had a listener call up and mention about Cyrus Gilson, who is the, he was the guy that uh, uh, did the lie detector or the lie detector uh, mm-hmm. gentleman too as well. Who who played him in the movie? I don't know. Oh, okay, all right. Well, the, the gentleman that called up said that that was the gentleman, and he he is still in Arizona. He's been retired, of course. So we may have to see where he's at and get him on the show. That would be fascinating to find out from him. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what his experience was? They always have old vicarious sayings in the, the True West magazine, and they always crack me up. This this month, it's when you study history, you realize people have been stupid for thousands of years. <laughs> thousands? <laughs> thousands. Uh. <laughs> you ever watch Young Guns growing up? That was a big movie in, in our circle from our friends from New River. And one of the characters in it, Doc Skurlock, was played by Kiefer Sutherland. And he's kind of put out to be a loquacious poetic. And apparently that's not true. They've got a page on it. Uh, and in the movie, he dies in a gunfight. But that's not true either. He died in Eastland, Texas in night at the age of 80. 40, for the last 45 years of his life, he would never talk about the days mm. of Billy the Kid. Wow. At one point, that area, Lincoln New, uh, Lincoln, New Mexico, President Rutherford B. Hayes declared it the most dangerous street in America. And there you go. It was so dangerous that the music uh, scared him, too. <laughs> Eight o'clock also, hour coming up. Also, a great uh, article on John Wesley Powell in True West Magazine this month on his adventure through the Colorado River. Yes, 8 o'clock hour. It's the outdoor living hour, and we're going to be talking about monsoon prep for your landscape.